0: You're listening to Real Presence Live on the Real Presence Radio Network. Join in the conversation on our Facebook page or on Twitter. And be sure to like and follow us for more great Catholic content. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to this uh, second half hour of Real Presence Live. I'm uh, your host uh, with my wife, Doreen. I'm Jack Canelli.
1: Welcome back.
0: And welcome back. And... Uh, we're uh, thanks for being with us today, and uh, but before we move on to our uh, the next segment, uh, did you know that you can listen to Real Presence live on the RPR app? You can also submit a prayer intention and much more. Look for it in the app store. So lots of information there, and lots of things you can do on the app, including making a donation to Real Presence Radio too, which is always welcome. You don't have to do it just during. Uh, in the context of our live drives.
1: Very good suggestion. Yes.
0: That's right, yeah. So maybe I should repeat that one. You can make a donation online to Real Presence Radio by going to the uh, the website or on the app. So think about it, go to the app store, and uh, take care of business. Why don't we start with a joke, Doreen?
1: Okay. <laughs> and a prayer <laughs> for our next guest. that. <laughs> He will be here. Uh so here's the it's like a riddle, Jack, so you have to Okay answer this one. What did the turkey say to the computer?
0: What did the turkey say to the computer? Um does it have the word gobble in it? No. Okay.
1: Turkey said Too close. Gobble? Squawk.
0: Um computer. Com- Oh, I don't know. What did the turkey say to the computer?
1: Google, 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 Google. I get
0: Google, it. I, Google. I I get it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> did I tell that Flintstones joke the uh, last time we were on? I think you did. Okay, I won't do that one. <laughs> no, I, I, we don't want to Well, yeah, I, I do. Oh, okay. Go ahead. The, what is it? The people in. Um,
1: oh, I don't think you did tell that.
0: You the, told that The to people in Dubai do not like the the Flintstones. But the people in Abu Dhabi do. <laughs> I got another one. That's
1: hard to say.
0: Did, there's <laughs> there, there's another one I saw, and I don't know if I can do this one properly though. But a, a rabbit, a priest, and a Protestant minister, and a Protestant minister walked into a bar, and the bartender says to the rabbit, "What are you doing here?" And he said, "Well, autocorrect." Rabbit, a rabbit, a priest. And a Protestant minister walk into a bar?
1: I don't get it
0: at all. Take the tea off of Rabbit.
1: Rabbi. Yeah. Oh, ho, 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 ho. thanks for explaining that. Our guest is with us, Jack. Yes.
0: <laughs> yes, Professor Ken Pennington is with us, and we're going to be talking about the Inquisition. Welcome, Professor. Welcome. I'm glad to be here. Yes, and we're happy to have you. And uh, I tell you, uh, I was reading through the uh, information that you sent ahead of time your little biographical stuff and you know we're a hotbed of Scandinavians up here in the uh, the upper Midwest and I I I I'm not going to uh, mention the in your bio where you talk about the misfortune of coming out of a Scandinavian gene pool but attempts to correct this biological problem by spending as much time as possible in Italy
1: <laughs> now that he's said it <laughs> I I also uh,
2: I also managed to bloom my Scandinavian team pool even further by marrying a Swede from the Midwest, Oxford, Illinois, which is uh, a hotbed of Scandinavian teams.
0: Yes, Ken, are you on a speakerphone right now? Because you're a little bit uh, fuzzy uh, on the quality of your. the the broadcast. Yes, I am. You all it up? Yeah, if you could just get on the uh, the regular handheld handset. Okay,
2: how is this? That's
0: that, better. That's better. Trez, I'm looking at Trez. She's giving me a nod as well. So, she's the, yeah. You're sounding a lot better. Anyway, um, I'm. Uh, excuse me. Oh. Doreen is motioning for me to oh. do something, but I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> I but. was
1: trying to point to the right papers for for him. He's got a pile in his hand.
0: Yeah, I've got a pile of stuff here. Um, it, uh, But uh, I, I, we're going to do what we do with all of our guests, uh, if you don't mind, Ken, and we'll just have you kind of introduce yourself and uh, maybe your connection. <clears throat> you know, we're talking about the Inquisition. I think, uh, you know, we... Uh, uh Catholics in particular uh have an maybe have an interest in that but uh sometimes how we learn about it in uh you know popular culture from movies and uh radio and TV and I think sometimes we might get uh, a, a wrong impression or at least one that's uh you know at least slanted to say the least but and I and I thought it would be fun to have you come on and kind of tell us about it what you know what might be misperceptions and, and what's true about it. But why don't you give us a little bit about your background?
2: Well, I, uh, I decided that I would become a medieval historian uh, very early on. And I had the good fortune at the University of Wisconsin of studying with um, James Brundage, who was an eminent uh, Catholic medieval historian. And, um, I got an undergraduate degree and a master's degree with frontage. And then I went on to Cornell where I studied with another Catholic historian, Brian Tierney. And, um, after my postdoc, I did a postdoc in Berkeley with yet a third Catholic historian named uh, Stefan Kuttner. Kuttner is, um, background is particularly interesting because he was a German Jew who got his law degree at the University of Berlin in 1933, and to be a German Jew in 1933, and having studied uh, the Catholic tradition, legal tradition, uh, he was a persona non grata in German institutions and Stefan went to Rome in 1933 with his new wife, Eva, and stayed in Rome until it became an intolerable stay in Rome in 1940. And they fled to the United States And my university, the Catholic University of America, then <clears throat> hired him to teach canon law, and he stayed in uh, and Washington at Catholic University until 1964, when he moved to Yale, and then in 1970, he moved to Berkeley. Uh, These three men were the great influence in my life, because when you're a young graduate student, you don't really know what you want to do or what to do field or subject you're interested in, and uh, Brundage first introduced me to the Catholic legal tradition in the medieval period, and because he interested me, I went to study with Tierney, and uh, and then later, as I said, as a postdoc, I studied with uh, Kuttner, Berkeley, and these three men... Have immersed me for the rest of my life, I suppose I should complain about it, but I've spent my entire legal career um teaching career teaching the history of law
0: well you it sounds like you certainly had some uh, uh, very eminent professors who kind of fired your fired your passion for learning about uh, uh, and teaching history. Uh, why do you think it's good for Catholics to know about uh, to know the history of the <clears> church?
2: Well, I I think it's particularly important because that's what I've done for my entire scholarly career. <laughs> Even I first taught at Syracuse University, which is not, it's a private university and not a Catholic university, but I taught the uh, history of the church. It um, uh, was a large freshman class, and although <clears throat> not all of my students were Catholic, they um, They learned about the history of the Church in that class, and I also continued to teach that class to undergraduates at Catholic University when I came to Washington in uh, 2001. And it's the long and the short of it is there's an enormous amount of misinformation about um, Catholicism and the history of Catholicism in popular culture, and the subject that we're going to discuss today is another example of that, but um, the the importance is you ought to know what is true and what is not true. And I think that particularly for Catholics, the Church is not when you look at the church from a historical point of view.
1: Ken, are you still there? We lost
0: you. I, I, yep. Well, Uh, okay. I, we will, we'll go to a quick break right now while we try to get, uh, Uh, ken back and we'll continue our discussion about the inquisition this is real presence live where the focus is not on the evil around us but on conversion and mercy through the good news that is always good we're local engaging and live on the real presence radio network
3: God's blessings to all of you today as you are listening to Real Presence Radio. This is Father Wilhelm, and I'm a priest of the Diocese of Fargo. What a wonderful gift and a grace that we have in our holy church is that we have a holy mother, Jesus' mother, who loves us so very much, and she prays for us. Isn't it wonderful to have a mother on our side, a mother who prays for us, a mother who loves us as Christ is our brother, then that means that Mary is truly our mother, our spiritual mother. And so, as you pray that beautiful gift of the Hail Mary, let each of these prayers be as roses that is presented before her holy feet, and she brings our prayers and lays them before her Son, Jesus, and all of us. Always listen to our mother. Listen to what our mother is asking you. Come to the Savior. Come to my Son. Come to Jesus Christ.
0: This is Real Presence Live on the RPR Network, bringing you stories of faith and hope through local hosts and guests from across the Upper Midwest. Now, back to the show. Okay, welcome back to this installment of Real Presence Live with Jack and Doreen Kennelly as your hosts. And we have uh, Professor Ken Pennington back on. He's a professor emeritus uh, in medieval history at the Catholic University of America, and we're talking about uh, the history of the church and specifically uh, the Inquisition. And before we went on the break, I I know, Ken, you had mentioned that uh, it's important for Catholics to know their history, and one of the reasons is because uh, there seems to be, in the popular culture, a lot of uh, misinformation or just misguided uh, uh, understandings of uh, history and certain events, and so... And I think the Inquisition is one of those. So uh, why don't you, let's start out, why don't you, what do you think is most people's uh, idea uh, uh, when when they're referring to the Inquisition?
2: Well, most people think of the Inquisition, I think, as being an ecclesiastical institution that uh, punished uh, heretics in the medieval, early modern, and even up until the uh, 17th century, punished heretics with torture and death. And um, that picture is, to say the least, very, very flawed. The, uh, The main point that I would make today is that the Inquisition has an ecclesiastical institution within the church did not exist. It um, has been it has been constantly repeated. and if you go on the internet and um, Google Inquisition, you'll see article after article after article talking about the Institute of uh, Inquisition as an institution, within the church during the medieval and uh, early modern period and it simply isn't true the um, it was never a an institution it was a court procedure the inquisitorial court procedure and the um and the difference is very very important because The court procedure, which was called an inquisitio, that's a Latin term which simply means inquisition, was a court procedure that was developed during the 12th century, and during the 12th century, this court procedure was based on the idea, a novel idea, that a judge could inquire, could investigate, could make an inquisitio, an inquisition, into a particular crime. And whether that crime was murder, adultery, or heresy, the procedure was exactly the same. And so the, um, the, the first to repeat myself, the first important point that I would make is that the Inquisition, as an ecclesiastical institution, did not exist. It was neither an episcopal
1: institution or a papal institution. Ken, who were the judges? Well, the judges um, it evolved in the case of prosecuting heresy.
2: <clears throat> the judges were first bishops at the end of the 12th century. Um, heresy was a very widespread problem within Europe. <laughs> when we think of the Middle Ages, I think most people think of the Middle Ages as being a very um, homogeneous Catholic society. Mm -hmm. And it was far from being that. At the uh, end of the 12th century, or I should say the second half of the 12th century, there were heretics all over Europe. That is to say, there were people whose belief systems differed from the belief systems of the Roman Catholic Church. And so, what you had in the 12th century was widespread, what we would call, heretical beliefs. And the 12th century was also, uh, eminent historians have called the 12th century the persecuting society. The uh, heresy was not looked upon as being a problem before the 12th century. There were heretics in Europe uh, before the 12th century, and local ecclesiastics or late local secular lords may or may not have paid attention to them, but they certainly did not persecute them. They did not put them on trial, and they did not kill them. The um, 12th century changed that. And if you ask the question, well, why did it happen in the 12th century? The easiest answer, or the most convincing answer, among other causes, is the fact that the papacy itself, and this is perhaps something that is also misunderstood by a lot of Catholics as well, the papacy was not the monarchical, powerful institution that it is today, and That it became, in the 13th, 14th, and 15th, 16th centuries, it was not the powerful institution with universal jurisdiction in Christendom until the end of the 12th and the beginning of the 13th century. And the, the result of that, the result of the Church Juridically, and I'm talking now from a purely juridical point of view, the point of the church not being a unified political legal institution until the 12th century was that the papacy wasn't capable. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No pope before the uh, beginning of the 13th century, end of the 12th, beginning of the 13th century. Had the jurisdictional authority to impose doctrinal uniformity in all of Christendom.
0: And so uh, once they got that ability, is that when the uh, the the inquis the inquisition process began? well the
2: and the inquisition <laughs> process, uh, the legal process. Is named after the court procedure, as I said before, that covered all sorts of crimes. Before the 12th century, if you had a legal case, hello, we're yes, here. here. We're here. <laughs> oh, I um, before the 12th century, a, a plaintiff had to make an accusation. It was only In the 12th century, that not only ecclesiastical courts, but also secular courts empowered judges to make investigations, again, an inquisitio. And so that was the big change in the legal systems of Europe, that crimes could be investigated by proper authorities. Before that, it wasn't possible, and it wasn't possible to bring a legal case. Now, what is the function of a district attorney
0: in American
2: law? To investigate crimes. That didn't exist before the 12th century in Europe.
0: My understanding is that the the right to confront one's accusers was something that... uh... Was kind of given to us by way of the Inquisition. Is that correct?
2: Uh, No. (laughs) Um, The Inquisition, as a matter of fact, violated basic legal, uh, that basic due process procedure uh, by shielding witnesses from the person who was to be accused according to the standards of law which was developed in the 12th or 13th, 14th centuries, the accused had the right to see all the evidence and to know who his or her accusers were. That was a piece of due process that was not universally rejected by the inquisitorial judges, but was dismissed in some cases. And that's one of the reasons why the Inquisition has gotten such a bad reputation. There's an eminent legal historian at UCLA who is uh, publishing a book in my uh, series here at Catholic University, in which he goes into this question in great detail. In fact, over uh, 800 pages of uh, detailed explanation of how inquisitorial courts, for the most part, stand uh, followed the standards of due process. But uh, in some cases, the inquisitorial judges departed, and, uh, well... In just the same way that judges today sometimes don't follow strict rules of due process, this is not unknown in the modern period either. There are bad judges, in other words. Yeah.
1: Um, can I have a question about um, the church today? Is there an ecclesiastical court system in the church today? And if so, what is it, and what does that look like? And you've got only about a minute to, <laughs> to be yeah. able to answer that question
2: well there is there are ecclesiastical courts every uh, every bishop has his court and uh, there is a court in rome that uh, deals with appeals from episcopal courts and those courts are are um, governed by the rules of procedure which are um which were developed in the medieval and
0: early modern period. Ken, I think we're coming up on a break here, Ken. I I want to thank you for being with us today. Uh, I wish we had a little more time, because I'm sure there are a lot more uh, uh, misconceptions about the Inquisition and the Church's part in that that uh, would be fun to have you on as a guest at at another time. But uh, for now, we've got a hard break, and we want to again thank you for being with us. And we want to remind all of our listeners to stay with us, and up next we'll be to